Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Rainbow Road. My name is Travis Ryans. Mike Deneen is off this week. He's enjoying a lovely cottage trip and can't be with us. However, I am joined by four wonderful guests, uh, three of which are joining us again from previous episodes. We'll start with Aton Shalman, a performer who joined us for the Overwatch episode. Aton, so glad to have you back. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me back. No, of course. <laughs> uh, joining us again is our resident Mass Effect expert, Ashley Park, a writer for games and television. Ashley, thank you for coming back. <laughs> expert, more like I just couldn't shut up about the game, but glad to be here. <laughs> I think that's what qualifies you to be an expert, just not being able to stop talking. In the age of the internet, that is what qualifies <laughs> as an expert. I'll take it. And piping in there is Ashley Cooper, another writer for games and television. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. And last but certainly not least, we have Anthony Oliveira, a critic, dumpster raccoon, PhD, and all so much more. Thank you so much for joining us, Anthony. (laughs) I think certainly least, but yes, thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today, as I have said, we are talking about Mass Effect, which is why we have bought these lovely people on. So let's dive in. First released in 2007, Mass Effect is a space opera that sees you trying to save the galaxy from a race of sentient AI known as the Reapers. Developed by Bioware, this game was a culmination of an action RPG style that they had been developing with previous games such as Knights of the Old Republic and Jade Empire, where you could make dialogue choices that would shape the narrative of the game. Mass Effect stirred up major controversies with its first game by depicting the most softcore version of what can be called sex with your romantic partner, as well as giving female protagonists the option of sleeping with a sexy blue alien lady. This cemented the series as a queer icon in gaming, as we've discussed previously on the show. Now, once again, we are discussing a narrative-heavy series of games, and we will not be shying away from spoilers. We will also not be providing a plot summary, because the series is over 100 hours long. <laughs> We may mention Mass Effect Andromeda, but we will be focusing mainly on the trilogy. If you still haven't played the game, I would actually recommend not listening to this episode because there is a remaster very heavily rumored to be coming out later this year. So, I have brought you all on because of your various experiences with Mass Effect. Uh, Eitan, you're in the middle of a playthrough right now, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm almost done Mass Effect 2. It's my uh, third go-around. Awesome, awesome. Mm -hmm. Ashley Park, you have played Mass Effect how many times? Um, I stopped counting after 12. Oh my lord. (laughs) (laughs) And it depends on which number, but I would say that it wouldn't shock me if I've hit a thousand hours into the trilogy. Nice. I love it. Uh, Anthony, you actually were just playing Mass Effect Andromeda, which is why I jumped on you to join us. Uh, Was that your first time playing Andromeda? It was. I've only played the game once, and I was really impressed with myself that I was as exhaustive about it as I was. (laughs) But now I feel like maybe I shouldn't even be here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm a huge fan of the series. I'm so excited that there's going to be the remaster, because I do want to play again. But I've been enjoying streaming so much that I would want to play it on the PS4, so... That's very exciting news. Yeah, I'm kind of torn as to whether I would want to get it for the PS4, wait for the PS5, or whether I want it on the Switch to play it on the go. But, I mean, I've already bought it, like, twice, three times now, actually, Mass Effect. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, what's another three, right? (laughs) We'll see. Um, And Ashley Cooper, you were telling me before that you have a very personal connection to Mass Effect. Would you mind telling us about it? Uh, Mass Effect was the series that I was playing when I came out to myself. Wow. Yeah. Was it something that sort of helped you along your journey? Uh, In a lot of ways, yes. Um, Before I kind of came out to anybody, before anybody else knew, it was just kind of like me and my crew. 
instead of like stressing over who do I tell? What do I do? What's next? I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I don't know what's <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. I would get in my ship and I would talk to my crew and we would we'd go on adventures and they were my pals and you know, I was playing as Femshap up even before like I came out to myself and so like I just built the woman that I wanted to be in the game. And actually, I only have two tattoos on my whole body and they're both Mass Effect tattoos. Oh, what are they of? One is the Spectre logo and one is the Paragon logo. Oh, awesome. Nice. Very cool. The Spectre logo represents that nobody can tell me how to deal with situations. It's up to me to make the call. And the Paragon logo is, despite the fact that I'm the only one that can make those decisions, to always be sure to choose kindness. Oh my god. I think that's really sweet because I, cry. I think we <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to video games we are always talking about fantasy, specifically power fantasy, and it helps us be the best version of ourselves, but I think what's really interesting is that you look at 93% of people did a paragon run through. And that might have been some developer leaning and some developer bias with how the game was crafted, but I, I'd like to believe when it comes to people that we choose with our power fantasy to be kind that when we're given the resources and the room and the things that we need to be better people that we will, as long as we're supported and given those options, which I I think is really nice. And I think that's really sweet that you have that tattooed on you. Actually, the majority of player agency heavy, like RPGs and stuff do have overwhelming statistics leaning toward like the quote unquote good playthrough. That's really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I guess those people don't play a lot of GTA. (laughs) (laughs) There isn't a lot of room for kindness in GTA. Like there's no (laughs) options for that. So we'll actually get back to sort of that binary morality system later, but just to break the ice before we get into all the heavy academic analysis, I wanted to ask each of you, uh, when it comes to your squad mates, which make up so much of the story, the classic question of fuck, marry, kill. (laughs) So starting with you, Aten, with any three squad mates from any of the three games, fuck, marry, kill. Oof. Um, Hmm... I might marry Garrus. I don't know. I really like him. I don't know. He's, he's in all three of the games. Uh, yeah, and I just got really close to Garrus, and I think he's, I think he's a cool dude. So I think I, I, maybe I'd marry Garrus. Um, fuck Caden, I guess. Really? Because that's all he's good for? Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm leaving the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Physically, I guess he does it for me. Okay. And kill Ashley Williams. Really? Interesting. We'll get to it later, but I just didn't like her. And actually, this was the first time I had this reaction, but as I've just been replaying Mass Effect 2 for the third time, it's been a while, um, this was the first time when I was like, I find Jack annoying. (laughs) I don't know. Like, she's been through a lot, and I get the whole rebel, badass, dangerous criminal, like, cool. I, I, I think that's great, but uh, I don't know. Go to Hot Topic and, and relax. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't get much of an arc until three, and she gets even less of an arc if you're taking a renegade playthrough. Like, she can vocalize how unfulfilled she kind of feels at the end of that playthrough if you blow up Pragya and don't 
let her heal really i let her I mean, blow it up and i let her like get her feelings out or whatever and she was still kind of like annoying so <laughs> that's what i mean yeah. get- i liked her in three when she like you know got her got her shit together a little bit more and like was teaching at the biotic school but uh yeah in two wasn't really a fan of her all right so you kill jack then and ashley oh oh right ashley right <laughs> don't forget about ashley no can't forget about ashley no no uh okay so going to you ashley cooper fuck mary kill okay fuck jack <laughs> okay because <laughs> she's definitely into weird shit definitely confirmed mary liara yep and kill ashley interesting okay <laughs> And what about you, Ashley Park? You know, Miss Miss Mass Effect here. I have to preface this by saying that I'm trash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Copy that. <laughs> noted. Noted for the record. Putting it down in your file. Yep. You'll see why. I would fuck Zaid Masani. What? Wow. He is my favorite character in the whole fucking trilogy, and he's the fucking <laughs> DLC character. <laughs> I would marry Jack. She's my fucking wife. She's ride or die. <laughs> I've sat quietly hearing insults about her, but that's fine. <laughs> You don't deserve her. You don't understand her. (laughs) And I would kill Ashley Williams because I think as we can see, Ashley's will not suffer a racist Ashley to live. (laughs) Yes! There can only be one, or in this case, two. (laughs) Just no racist Ashley's. The Council of Ashley's has decided. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like some Rick and Morty shit right there. Uh, Okay, so then what about you, Anthony? Fuck, Mary kill. Oh, uh, okay, I'm very interested in this Zaid choice. I, I would like to hear more about that. But uh, I picked uh, James Vega, just like the big idiot muscle head. Like that to me is perfect. That's that's king the of the himbos. Yeah, exactly. He's just sweet and nice and big as a house, and that's the perfect fuck. Um, Mary is definitely for me, and I'm already mad about the slander I've heard. Caden Alenko, <laughs> my beautiful Canadian Vancouver husband. Uh, who just, like, cooks meat for you and is sad. That's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> what I wanted before. And um, I'm a huge ally to the Council of Ashley's. I think she is by far the worst. And I think it's only aged. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like to replay this game and have this character talking about humans first in the era of Donald Trump. So killing Ashley sounds like such a joy. Again. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I, I think for myself, I would say... Uh, at this point, fuck Morinth, because I'm just done. I'm just, I'm, I'm very so you done. die? Oh, no. <laughs> you just want to go out with a bang, literally. <laughs> but like, it's been months of pandemic with nothing, and this is how I want to go at this point. <laughs> um, Mary Liara as well, and I'm pretty sure the developers wanted me to say that, but I'm still going to say it anyways, because they really railroad you into that romance. Uh, and kill, I'm going to cop out and say Thane. I'm going to put him out of his misery and say that, <laughs> like... I love Thane. He, he ain't got long left anyways, and he... So you want to you wanna mercy kill Thane, and you want to be mercy killed by Morinth. Are you okay? (laughs) (laughs) Real euthanasia subplot to this. (laughs) I mean, also, like, I I can't trust anyone on my crew with an eidetic memory. Uh, I don't need people remembering what I did as Shepard. That's a problem. That's a liability. I am actually curious about Zaid Masani. Do you want to? Do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> I I feel like everyone's searching for this great explanation, and I I really don't know if I can give you one, Zaid. You look at that man and you're like, that man fucks. <laughs> 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 
And you know what? The heart wants what the heart wants. You know? Yeah, we'll say this is on we'll say this is on the heart. <laughs> or as I like to say, the lizard brain. He just looks like he smells like an ashtray to me. Like, <laughs> right? And you know what? I dig that. I'm like, he smokes cigars, he shoots things. He's got that grizzled voice. I'm like, I'm, I told you, I'm trash. That's right. the only explanation you need. <laughs> Good for you living your truth. I like that. So I was going to ask you guys in the first game when you're faced with your first sort of Sophie's Choice moment, whether you would choose between Caden and Ashley. But it sounds like I've kind of split the room already when it comes to that decision. Sophie's Choice. <laughs> <laughs> but in the sense of, can I kill them both? <laughs> ah. I mean, they've got some serious case of humanitis going on where they're like the most boring characters of a colorful cast of people. I think I remember, Travis, you once described Caden as his whole character as he gets headaches, question mark, and then period. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I haven't played with him in three, so maybe he has more of an arc there. I don't know. I saved him for this last playthrough. I actually saved him. So um, I'll, I'll I'll have to wait and see what he's like in Mass Effect 3 as well. I wouldn't know yet. Yeah, like, I, Ashley was a space racist, but she was interesting. <laughs> like, and I, that's not much of a defense, I suppose, but uh, I don't know. She was Christian and she liked poetry and she had a tragic <laughs> family backstory and she I love wasn't... that you said she's racist, but she was interesting. She was Christian. <laughs> As if that was part of the list of interesting characteristics. Is she Christian? Is she canonically? I've never, I, she died for me, so I don't know much about her as a person. <laughs> is she canonically Christian? Christianity survives in the Mass Effect universe? Yeah, yeah which is yeah. what was interesting to me. That was, I, I found, because I, especially when I first played it, I was an angry little atheist kid, so I very much was like, oh, you still believe in this hundreds of years, Han, huh? Hmm, okay. And Ashley Williams is like this, like, trad wife? Is that what's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, she does say in the first game, like, uh, I'm a believer. That's not a problem with you, is it, Commander? Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, I think your Paragon response is something along the lines of, I respect the faith of all of my squad mates and crew members. And then the Renegade response is something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, keep it to yourself. No one cares. Wow. (laughs) I am, I really liked, was it Suvi in the, the Andromeda game who has like her weird like lesbian religion situation. I love that a lot. <laughs> but I'm lesbian religion. <laughs> I like Caden. I can't believe all this like slander about him. He's to me he's like that Jean Grey archetype of like the moody mental powers character. Um can someone make the case against Caden for me? I'm really baffled. <laughs> I just pers- I just didn't get much from him yeah. other than I was like, "Oh, he's he's cute." the end and not very good in battle (laughs) Caden Caden started off on the wrong foot with me but I still save him over Ashley because I couldn't stand another two games where she would be calling me skipper (laughs) (laughs) I was like apart from the racism like that also just like get get out but Caden like when I first played Mass Effect 1 I didn't realize there was romance. And I thought that you just had to be nice to your crew. So I would pick all of the positive dialogue options with Caden. <laughs> and then you get to the suicide mission. And then you get to that cutscene, And all of a sudden, I'm just like, why are you in my room? Why are you getting naked? And I felt very violated. I felt very assaulted. And so after that, I was like, Caden, you're on a short fucking leash. Like that was not enthusiastic consent. <laughs> 
which is also kind of funny considering how he reacts if you're Femshep and you are nice to both him and Liara. And all you have to do is be nice because eventually uh, they will both confront you as Femshep and be like, yo, I thought I was your ride or die. What's this I hear about you flirting with, you know, other person over here? Um, both Liara and Caden. Can I just that. say how quintessentially queer an experience it is that you are unaware of the fact that you have been flirting with oh somebody <laughs> for hours? <laughs> so my experience of this game was I bought I played the games after they all came out. I very meticulously tried to avoid spoilers, but simultaneously plan what my experience of the game was. And I clocked Caden going in right away. I was like, this guy is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I planned for Mass Effect 3 to be with him. But I am myself have a bit of a trad wife in me. So I was like, it's Caden and that's it. So, <laughs> But I had the exact same experience where I accidentally flirted with Jack and suddenly I was having sex with her out of like politeness. And I... <laughs> <laughs> So I, the only characters I romanced in all three games were Caden and once accidentally Jack. <laughs> oh my God. Amazing. Well, again, heightening the queerness of it, when they do confront you with Caden and Liara, basically as renegade femshep, you can look at both of them and just go, hey, I mean, we can work something out. We could just, you know, let's go up to my room and we'll all talk about it together. And Caden immediately is like, nope, I'm out. Like, it just, <laughs> just storms out of the room. And Liara's like, I don't have any hangups about this, but this is still awkward. <laughs> uh, what a good boy. Polyamory is given as renegade. That's fascinating. <laughs> I, I love it, right? I love that interpretation. Uh, so we don't really get a lot of uh, queerness until we hit Mass Effect 3. And we have Samantha Trainer and Steve Cortez. Two queer people of color, canonically queer, who state their preferences and are not available to an opposite gendered character. And they are not part of your squad. You don't really get to develop relationships with them in the same way that you do with your squad mates. Um, how do we feel about that kind of inclusion with them? Like, is did you enjoy them as characters? Did you romance them for the queerness of it? Um, what about you, Eitan? Um, I definitely enjoyed them as characters. Well, I enjoyed Samantha Trainer a lot more than I did um, What's-His-Name. Um, but I slept with him anyway because it was the only option I had and Caden was dead. <laughs> I appreciated that they put those characters in the game. Yes, they weren't squad mates, but um, I, I think I remember appreciating uh, Samantha trainer's uh character a lot i think i remember something distinctly about a an electric toothbrush yes a six thousand credit toothbrush <laughs> right you know and, and you have to appreciate a girl that takes care of her teeth <laughs> <laughs> i i appreciated it they could have not put them in the game so it's something okay what about you, Ashley Cooper, getting to play your gay femshep lover? Um, what Did you stick with Liara or did you go with Samantha Trainer? I stuck with Liara, but I love Samantha. I think it's really cool and I really appreciated the inclusion of the romanceable characters outside of the crew because it makes it feel more immersive and more like a natural world. It's almost like a silly constraint to only let me have romantic involvement with people that I am in the field with. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, like in uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, the person that I chose to romance is not somebody that you can take into the field with you. Oh, okay. And I actually ended up really liking that experience in Dragon Age, but because I had already kind of like bought in on Liara, 
Um, I stuck to that path over the course of Mass Effect. Oh, you dirty, dirty monogamist. Okay. Uh, <laughs> She's a paragon. Look, how do you one-up blue space boobs? Yeah, that's very you true. You can't. That's if, very you, true. if you have an answer for me, I'll start over again. <laughs> Uh, well, Ashley Park, you said that you usually play as a male Shep, or at least your canonical playthrough for you was a male Shepherd. Oh, no, actually, my canonical playthrough is Femme Shep, but Mass Effect was a weird game for me because in Dragon Age or like other RPGs, I tend to play a male protagonist, but Mass Effect was the one where I generally play Femme Shep. I just think she's way better. Yeah, Jennifer Hale, my God. Oh, for sure. But to Romance Jack, I had to be male Shep, and I was just like, fuck, let's just get this over with. <laughs> 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 but I want my tattooed wife. I can I say? <laughs> nice. Well, what about you, Anthony? How did you feel about um, Samantha and Steve Cortez? I guess, as I said, my playthrough was sort of designed. Like, I, I knew how I was ending it. And it produced this kind of strange effect where I played Mass Effect basically as a closeted character, right? Like, that's sort of the experience <laughs> of playing Mass Effect. It's like, you can't don't really have a way to articulate yourselves to these other characters as a male uh, shepherd. So... I really liked the option of suddenly, like, a thing you don't really get to see in video games, which is, like, queerness as friendship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was kind of cool to me to have queer friends. Samantha Trainer is not a character I would ever romance, but I loved this kind of almost, like, little sister vibe of, like, uh, hypochondriac and, like, she's incredibly neurotic. I really liked that energy. Like, to me... Even in real life, Steve's grief is so fresh that it's like, I don't feel like right even sleeping with this guy, you know? Like, right? It's like yeah. so on the surface. <laughs> yeah, it's so like, unhealthy. Um, and it does have this effect. The complaint is always that he's whiny, but it's like, damn, he just like lost his husband. Yeah. And like <laughs> walking him through that as like a friend and as like a, a, a person who also could maybe understand queerness and like the queer lived experience of that, it felt weirdly honoring to me to be like your relationship was real and i just want to be a good buddy to you you know yeah i never yeah. really saw it from that lens because i didn't keep caden <laughs> because if you do romance caden and if you are sort of bound by the strictures of the non-modded game where like you live with him for such a long period of time and have no means to articulate any kind of relationship with him the arc of the story ends up being that there was this man you could have had a romance with and didn't, and then you died, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this beautiful melody that goes through their relationship where they always keep running out of time with each other, right? Like they missed their chance once and now they have this one chance in Mass Effect 3, but there's always a clock running. They're, they keep uttering this phrase of like, not enough time, when this is over, not enough time, and then... Caden's basically last line is, I know this is goodbye. So it's like this horrible wrenching um, thing where they finally have a chance to imagine a life together and don't get to have it. I think it's really a beautiful story. (laughs) Did I just get converted to the Caden camp? I can't believe you're winning me over on (laughs) Caden. Damn. I do agree that there, I do think there's a great uh, quality to being able to romance a character that is not in your squad. I think, and I did that with uh, Andromeda with the very domestic-y Gil relationship, which ends up giving you the happy ending that Caden doesn't get to have. But there's this kind of beautiful Achilles and Patroclus thing happening with Caden, who's like the second human specter and everything. And it's like, you both understand each other in such this specific, like, old school, like, sacred band of thieves, like, gay love in the battlefield kind of thing. And I just, I just really love this very sad ending of that relationship. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've seen in a video game, honestly. <laughs> wow. I will say where Caden is concerned, I never used to give him much attention before. He 
seemed kind of boring to me, but after playing a lot of Animal Crossing New Horizons, <laughs> I've realized that there are situations where people really like wallpaper. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I'm just seeing. I love a sad boy. I love a Sufjan Stevens. I love a like Frodo Baggins. I just want to take care of these gentle little broken birds. <laughs> and Kate and his headaches is like perfect, where it's just like there's a personality that you really have to work to find, which I really like. He's like got a, he's a bit of a weirdo, but if you you could just completely miss it, which I really like as a character design. I have I always think of that line from The Simpsons where Lisa talks about that boy she has a crush on Langdon Alger. <laughs> yeah, I love a Langdon Alger. He's very quiet and he enjoys <laughs> puzzles. That's all I want. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Okay, well, we are sort of dancing around the other sort of technical queer romance. So Liara was available to FemShep in the first game and stirred up a huge controversy. But she continues to be an option as you go through. If you play the second one with the Shadow Broker DLC, you can sleep with her again. And then in the third game, she rejoins your squad. And then we come to the interesting topic of the Asari. So the Asari are described as a monogendered species and use female pronouns, such as she, her, uh, and use a lot of female language like matron, matriarch, and maiden. But are they female, though? Is that English interpretation of them as characters or human interpretation or, you know, any species but Asari interpretation uh, because of the gender binaries that they work within? Or are they just canonically female? Have you guys ever considered it before going starting with Aton? I've always just sort of thought about them as female. I mean, the designers went into great length and to making them look very feminine. Um, I, w- I was just playing Lyra the Shadow Broker, and Liara was uh, referred to the uh, to the Asari Specter as that woman over there was the one that tried to kill me, and so I just I didn't really put too much thought into it. I just realized that I asked a question about um, other genders and I'd started with one of the men in the group and I'm feeling a little shitty about that. So I'm going to throw over to Ashley Cooper. How do you feel about it? I think it's a really fascinating and interesting question, actually. Because I don't even know, aside from like directly asking somebody at Bioware, that there's a definitive way to interpret it within the text of the game, right? Because like all of the language that we're hearing is English like, it's hard to say, is this the language they use in their own company? Or is this the language that they're using so that we understand what the fuck they're saying? Yeah. I think it's I think it's a fascinating way to think about it. And it's not something that prior to our conversation about it that ever even came to mind. Well, it, it is weird because there's, like, conflicting things within the text that don't necessarily add up, which is, thanks, Bioware. Uh, Ashley Park, as a person who has the most experience with the lore of Mass Effect, <laughs> do you have any thoughts on it? It's definitely been like a fascinating question to kind of chew on because yes, like technically they are a non-binary people, but that's because they don't have like a binary gender system. Mm-hmm. I think that the Asari consider themselves female. They they do recognize that there are other genders in other species, but I think they follow a sci-fi tradition of being able to take a non-human species to really explore what traditional gender, sex, procreation, family constructs are, because the way that the Asari procreate is very different. 
like Liara is ostracized or a bit of a misfit within Asari society because she's a pureblood. She has dual Asari parentage, whereas the Asari favor mixed parentage because they seek genetic diversity. You know, like there's a lot of like fascinating, I think, conventions that the game is then able to poke at. And I think that across the board, you see that that's probably one of the things that the game's preoccupied with, because it's not just with the Asari, they also explore that with the Solarians and the Krogans, like all of their alien species, they give a different kind of life cycle to. Yeah, that's very true. They're able to explore that. But the Asari, I think, are really fascinating because it's almost like having space Amazons. Yeah. Like beyond just (laughs) how would an alien species be like, the game is like, well, what would it be like to have an all-female society and a very ancient, powerful, all-female civilization? So I think that at least given the time that the games came out in, that it was probably very purposefully female because they wanted to explore that thought experiment of like what does an all-female ancient civilization look like and how has it advanced how has it progressed and it's really cool to see (laughs) yeah i would like to change my answer (laughs) (laughs) uh what about you anthony do you have any thoughts on this yeah i come out of a different kind of tradition with these sorts of tech i guess i'm older i don't know i don't want to pull the room but i feel like i'm ancient so (laughs) uh and to me I mean, Mass Effect catches sci-fi at this very specific moment. Because wh- when was the first game? What year are we talking for Mass Effect 1? Uh, 2007. Oh, yeah, 2007. Like it, It's the most 2007 game you could ever imagine. Because it really does come out of the old Roddenberry science fiction Star Trek tradition. Yeah. And then kind of invent a new way of thinking about it. And to me, the Asari are so much part of the Roddenberry, Flash Gordon-y, post-war aesthetic of science fiction, um, which is a very colonial model of science fiction, right? Like, And the Asari, I love the idea of thinking about them as Amazons. It's a really useful way to think about them. You get a lot of these stories in, in science fiction after the war of like this exotic woman from another land who is sexually available to you um, and who is kinky and weird, and but safely so. Um, sort of the comfort woman, geisha in the Western imagination kind of way of thinking. Um, but it's a, it's an old tradition, right? Like it goes back to, I always think, I worked on uh, Shakespeare, and like you, as soon as colonialism arrives in the Western consciousness, this woman arrives. Um, Miranda in The Tempest is kind of one of the earliest versions yeah. of it. Like, what if you went to a new place and there was this woman who was fascinating and smart um, but didn't really understand sex? And, like, can you teach me about it? Like, it's <laughs> And the Asari kind of have that, like, table dancing sexual availability <laughs> to them. And everything about their character design feeds that, right? Like, oh we don't understand what a man is like, you know, uh, and they, they're a mono gendered, but they have the usual mammalian sex characteristics. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> so that's really interesting because it's a little thing that you can find where in one of the bars, you can see a table dancing, Asari, and like, there's a Turian, a Solarian and a human sitting at the table. And if you listen in on their conversation, they're talking about like, how is it that the Asari are appealing and attractive to every other alien species? And kind of the conversation that comes out of that is that everything that they find attractive, they're kind of projecting onto an Asari woman who is kind of almost like acting as their mirror right. for like what they want and what they like. Yeah. Cause they don't, they say that like um, humans enjoy the shape of their body. Solarians like their color. Um, certain people and like their, ten- their tentacles. Their tentacles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. 
but like there's something for everyone but it's like but they but they do kind of like acknowledge that like they are projecting their own desires onto this person yeah and it i do find it interesting too that like the asari definitely fall into that kind of like colonial trope but i think that as the games progressed they at least like were smart enough to keep building out their lore where it's like in the maiden stage that's when asari juveniles basically go out to become sex workers or strippers or mercenaries and that's sort of seen as their wild phase but as i get older and like hit matron or matriarch phase like the matriarchs that we see in the universe are incredibly powerful almost demigod like beings <laughs> like you've got aria samara or matriarch uh benizia then they're not very sexualized like they're mostly just like these crazy psychic power <laughs> wielding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> badasses that could crush you like a bug <laughs> yeah the Venezia is exactly the place to go, right? Because, like, even in its casting of Marina Sirtis, it, like, signals that it wants you to think about Star Trek in this moment, right? It, it, obviously, it's sort of a colonial idea, right? Like, this goes back to, like, Mateoka, like, Pocahontas, Sacagawea, right? Like, oh, I've been here forever and I'll guide you through this new world. I love watching Mass Effect transform and modify this figure that has always been the subject of desire, and I mean, obviously, in a very specifically straight male gazy kind of way, and then making it, well, no, she's she's the boss of the universe, and you're going to figure out how to live in her universe. I really like the way Mass Effect, even just in making humans the newcomers, converts a lot of old sci-fi tropes in amazing ways. Yeah. Um, and this being my favorite. <laughs> no, I mean, like, Mass Effect definitely utilizes a lot of old sometimes problematic sci-fi tropes, but at its best, it does make it not so cut and dry. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how you say that the Asari have evolved over the course of the series, because if you look at interviews and the art book of uh, the very first Mass Effect, they very explicitly state that they want the Asari to be the sexy green alien ladies, even though they've changed them to blue. That's the word that they use <laughs> is sexy green aliens, because it's throwing back to Star Trek, and they want them to take up that role, but then you do see them become fleshed out, and in Andromeda, there is a side conversation that I did not know existed uh, until I did research for this episode, um, and I'm just going to play a quick clip. It's in Andromeda where there's like that cultural exchange part of the Nexus where people can learn about other cultures. Oh, yeah. So as an Angara is talking to an Asari, she says, Yeah, your binary of other races is irrelevant to us. I've, I've been, been using feminine pronouns this entire time. Should I? On behalf of the Nexus, in my case, it's fine to, to the cultural center. Thank you for Please asking. Have a look around. I appreciate it. Some Asari prefer male pronouns. While others gravitate My people have several pronouns to identify themselves with. Perhaps I should prepare a document. Please do. So it is interesting to see how that has evolved from, you know, sexualized straight male gazy aliens uh, to becoming, you know, not outright stating that they are non-binary, but as close as you can get without using that word, really. So I don't know, I, I think it's really interesting. And it's such a shame that that conversation is not part of anything mainline, like mm. that you have to really stumble upon it. I didn't see it in my first playthrough. It is also interesting that you're talking about the problematic tropes of early Star Trek and how that is carried forward. And it, when you look at speculative fiction, it really can fall in these traps of racist tropes and, and monolithic cultures and things like that when you're writing in these sci-fi and fantasy worlds. Do you guys feel like Mass Effect handles that well with their species or do you think it's really poor? Um, 
Uh, I'll start again with you, Aton. I think it's handled pretty well. It's hard with, you know, fictional races like Krogan and Salarian. It, it, it's, it's a balance because when you introduce us to all of these new alien races, you have to give the player kind of a feeling of what they're like as a generalization, just so we can kind of get an understanding, get a handle on like, oh, Krogan are like this and Asari are kind of like that. But at the same time, to paint them all with the same brush is also problematic. So it's 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 all about a balance of giving us a feeling of their general culture while introducing us to standalone characters that can either play into those or break those stereotypes. But it can get really dicey when you can draw a lot of parallels to real life. Mm-hmm. But I think for the most part, Mass Effect has done a pretty good job of giving us a feeling of what all these alien races are like, but without making it too dicey. Yeah. I think they, honestly, I think they did a pretty good job. Cool. Um, Ashley Park. I think one of the biggest strengths about the Mass Effect trilogy is that it's universe. It has a lot of depth to it, like an untold amount of depth to it that you can keep going back and discovering something new because the game is also obsessed with offering you up so many different perspectives so, like, if you took the genophage, or if you took the Corian uh, Geth genocide, basically, like, you can choose who you want to talk to and get a very different playthrough or a very different interpretation of that world's events, or you can choose to talk to everyone and realize that it's not so simple. And the fact that a video game universe can have that many layers to it, I think, is really the strength of this game. So it's not as if problematic tropes or those kinds of like uh, classic sci-fi pitfalls don't exist, but that because they're willing to offer you up so many different perspectives, you can choose to see the Krogan as like these, you know, like unwashed brutes, or you can dig in deeper and you can see it from another perspective. And that doesn't make the universe perfect, but it definitely makes it feel very lived in, which I think is quite an astonishing achievement actually yeah sci-fi is incredibly useful in that it can create alien worlds alien species that allow us to examine human constructs or things about humanity or our own societal structures from a more accessible filter because oh we're not talking about a race war between people, we're talking about a race war between aliens. But I think that the shortcoming of science fiction is when they allow the allegory to be it and don't explore or push beyond that. And you allow the allegory to make you become complacent. Mm -hmm. So with adding Samantha Trainer and Steve Cortez, like even though it was a little light, I think that the inclusion was incredibly important because they went from, oh, you can have a a queer romance with Liara, who is technically a monogendered alien. So maybe it's not queer. Maybe it's just an alien thing to no, no, no. Queer people exist in this universe. Yeah. And it's funny that you said offering up all of those, um, perspectives. I think it's really interesting that you can get those perspectives as you bring specific crew members on specific missions. I will always bring grunt on Morden's loyalty mission because I want him to have to say all of what he's saying in front of a Krogan that he has to like be confronted with what he's done. I will always bring Legion on Tally's loyalty mission. I I try to make sure that 
when we're faced with these cultures that they're trying to like actually get perspective from the other side, which I think is, you know, kind of interesting. Uh, Ashley Cooper, do you feel like they do a good job of handling this or do you feel like, uh, you know, that they're falling into the same trope? I literally don't know how I could give a better answer than what Ashley just gave. <laughs> okay. All right. What about you, Anthony? Do you have anything? Um, yeah, I think that was really comprehensive. Um, the other thing though I like about this is the way science fiction gets to think about what does it mean to imagine non-humanity? And it, 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 this again goes back to Star Trek, really, I mean, which is a text that really wanted to think about humanism, right? Like, I like texts that insist upon non-humanness and yet humanity. And Mass Effect does that with its robots and its sentient life, but it also does that with its um, aliens. And I kind of like the way that even thinking about it in racial terms is kind of a flattening of it. Mm-hmm. One of the good things Mass Effect does is the thing that Star Trek never does right, which is like you you look at some of the Star Trek races and you're like, I am uncomfortable with the way this activates so many anti-Semitic tropes or so many anti-black tropes, you know? And you can't do that with Mass Effect, right? Like it would be very hard to map the Asari RX or the Krogan RY. Um, and I do like the depth of complexity that it gives you when analyzing the genophage or when analyzing the geth um, He's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's also interesting that you guys mentioned sort of the stuff about the monolithic cultures and, you know, Atom was saying that you have to strike a balance. And I think they actually do a pretty good job of using your squad mates as counterbalances to whatever cultures they come from. Like Garrus is a renegade mercenary, not the upstanding civil servant that he's expected to be. Morden has a crisis of conscience about what his people have done. Uh, you know, they use these characters who don't quite fit into their own society to show you what the society is like, but also how people don't fit in at the same time. Like, I, I like that balance. And I think as queer people, we can really identify with people who don't fit in. Do you guys feel like with this speculative fiction uh, that there was a certain queerness to some of the choices you got to make or storylines that came up that were not explicitly queer, but you're still looking at them through a queer lens? Uh, Ashley Park? Definitely. When I was trying to think of like what some of the major story events or choices were, and if there was a queer reading that I have of them, like I was thinking of the genophage and I thought that's actually very like uncomfortably reminds me a lot of how indigenous peoples get colonized from the fact that the Slarens fucking sterilize the Krogans. Like it's really awful and uncomfortable Yeah, with the Quarians and the Geth that also had a colonial bent, but also a religious bent to it because one of the most poignant things about learning more about Legion and the Geth is the fact that they were able to look at the creators and were disappointed. Like it has that bent <laughs> yeah. to it. But if anything, like when I thought about it, and you kind of touched upon it as well, it's like your crew is a crew full of misfits. And I think that Mass Effect, it, we we call it like the granddaddy of queer games. And I think it's really true. And I think it really was its most relatable, I think, to the queer community in that it's really strong sense of found family. And I felt that the most with Tally's story in Mass Effect 2, when she's called upon to the Admiralty Board and you go through this whole trial with her because she's charged with treason. And with the Quarians, their sense of family and they include their home and their family into their name to say, this person is from this family. Mm -hmm. And then when she goes through the trial, she feels a sense of betrayal and like she's been disowned because they say, you've been stripped of that title. Now you're Tali Zora uh, Vos Normandy. Yeah. And 
no matter how she comes out at the end of the trial, whether she's cleared or not, she keeps the Normandy title because she kind of goes through this journey of like, yes, the Normandy and the Normandy crew is my family. That's a family that I can choose. And I think that that idea of being disowned or being kicked out or that fear and that betrayal and that hurt, but then going through that journey of being able to say, but I can make my own family and I can choose my own family, I think is like, one of the biggest queer <laughs> stories that we have and something that I think a lot of queer people relate to. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool. I never saw it that way. Um, Ashley Cooper, do you have any any specific moments that you felt were really queer? I wouldn't say like individual moments, but like like whole swaths of the game yeah. and like perspectives in the game. Like we were talking earlier about the treatment of different alien races and stuff like that. And I can't help but kind of like view with a queer lens this idea that these races are always introduced to you by a stock list of characteristics that are supposed to wash over every single individual in that group. And it's only through independent investigation, essentially, that you're like, oh, that's actually not you're just painting everybody with the same broad brush this person is very unique and different and blazing their own trail and and this person and that person and actually none of them really fit this square peg round hole situation you've created here and it's something you have to dig for yourself to find right like yeah uh that that these stereotypes and these generalizations are not necessarily true these labels have been forced upon them by people outside of their communities. And it's only by caring enough to investigate that you get to see them as the individuals and the, the nuanced, complex people that they are. Yeah. And of course, yeah, like the, the, the whole Normandy crew is like just a, a proto chosen family story, like in every sense of the word. Yeah. And Mass Effect 2 really hammers that home as you collect them. It's, it's very true. As you collect them? <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, that's what it is. That's totally what it is. Anthony, do you have any like queer readings or queer lenses that you see through uh, through Mass Effect? I mean, I would definitely yes and everything that's gone before. I think that's absolutely <laughs> true. That it, I keep throwing you last. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think the other thing that seems really queer to me about Mass Effect is in a lot of directions about coming into consciousness of oneself, uh, whether that's as a species or whether that's as a person. And to me, that's always a very queer narrative uh, this is why i was immediately so fascinated by like the, I, when you guys were talking about how ashley is christian because like what would that even mean to be christian because like to me the quintessential queer narrative is the moment a character realizes everything i thought was true is not true and now i have to imagine a new version of myself and that to me that was my queer experience as a person who was raised in a very traditional catholic uh background um and had a moment where it's like my existential crisis of queerness was like well either i'm going to hell and i'm wrong or i have to imagine a new way to be and science fiction is kind of always that like what if you went out to space in mass effect the world was not what you expected and there was already a civilization waiting for you there and you had to negotiate a new place in it um but also like at a very embodied level right like to me, a very queer narrative in Mass Effect is like Edie's story, where it's like, well, you didn't have a body, and now you have this like almost ludicrously uh, sexualized body, right? <laughs> and like she has, and what's interesting about Edie is like it changes her relationship to everybody, even though she has not actually changed, right? Like she, her body becomes yeah. the site 
which people are invited to read. Even with Samantha, right? Like Samantha has like that crush on Edie once she has a body, right? The same thing in weird in a weird way, Miranda to me is a very queer character. She has an almost dysphoric experience with her own beauty that I find fascinating. Oh. She's very aware of her body as the site of male craftsmanship. She was designed to be beautiful to the male gaze, and she's very distanced and alienated from her own body in that way. I find there's something fascinating about Miranda that's kind of underexplored in the narrative, I think. But even Shepard has it too, right? Like, Shepard's death and resurrection by Cerberus makes Shepard's body the site of weirdness. In fact, when I was talking about the Caden relationship, one of the things that makes it beautiful to me is not just that they miss their chance, but as soon as Caden re-meets Shepard, he's not sure Shepard is the person that he knew. And he his problem is, like, he knows he doesn't have time, but the big problem is, uh, he actually says explicitly, I don't know if you're the person I trusted anymore. And so there's this weird, like, dysphoric experience even of Shepard's body, and Shepard is also not sure, like, are there implants in me I don't know about? Have I been rewired in ways I can't read or expect? Um, and that, to me, is a very queer storyline. That's fascinating. I haven't even... I thought, wow, okay. Mine seems totally tame in comparison now. I was just going to say, um, when it comes to Morinth, uh, I sort of saw her through a queer lens in that she is treated as a sexual predator because of who she is. At least the, the game itself presents her as uh, inherently predatory, uh, someone who can't hold any kind of relationship that the sex that she has will doom the other person and you know she's already doomed herself. And that's sort of the idea of the art at Yakshi, and I say a certain queerness to that of how homosexuality has been viewed by many people. And it's more nuanced as you go in. If you look through the codex, it actually says that the Ardat Yakshi are not anywhere near as rare as they are said to be, that 1% of Asaris fall somewhere on the Ardat Yakshi spectrum, which is a fascinating piece of lore um, <laughs> for them to, first off, like, just refer to it as a spectrum in the first place. But yeah. there, there's a lot there that's that's packed in, um, and that not everyone is known to be Ardat Yakshi, or they're, like, closeted, and that they try to hide it as well as they do, but whenever they're discovered, they're ostracized. Like, it's it, it's really fascinating to me. Oh, yeah. There's, like, a very traditional, like, femme fatale poison ivy thing about the Ardat Yakshi. But then to be like, no, let me force you to subjectivize that person and get to know Morinth. There's something very Catholic about the Asari. Just any culture that lives that long and becomes that decadent will always have this kind of Baroque aesthetic to it. Yeah. And this idea of, like, let's put our weird sex people into these forced celibate relationships is fascinating to me. Yeah, and especially because they put them in monasteries. Like, that is where they put them in their isolation. Yeah, it, it's not subtle, right? Like, no, not even a little. <laughs> it literally is, get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to take a look at the Geth and specifically the mission of uh, Legion, his loyalty mission, uh, where you are tasked with either rewriting the heretics or killing them. And it kind of feels like conversion therapy, like how you can rewrite someone and make them into what you want them to be, or you can kill them. And those are your only two options. (laughs) It's a little dark, but that's certainly a a sort of a queer idea that I, I looked at it through. But I also am a little upset at the fact that they assigned Paragon and Renegade values to that choice. Yeah, this was the only time I made a Renegade choice. And I was mad that it was coded as a Renegade choice. Yeah, I mean, well, do you want to do you want to explain your rationale behind that? Because I'm assuming you were trying to do a, a good person run through with that. Like, yeah, the choice was rewrite them and that gets coded as Paragon 
or kill them, and that gets coded as renegade. Yeah. I literally, I'm as we talked about at the beginning, like, I'm one of those people who's like, I'm going to be a good guy. Like, I definitely did, like, a an almost pure Paragon run-through, and I would very anxiously so. Like, one of the joys of these games is, like, thinking about ethical problems. And to me, the ethical choice when confronted with an enemy in wartime is it is more ethical to respect their subjectivity and kill them than to forcibly convert them. So <laughs> so to me, the more ethical choice was, well, you have made a decision that is a threat to my life, but I can't force you to change, so I will kill you. And to me, rewriting, rewriting the Geth is the more monstrous choice. I don't know if everyone else reads it that way. No, I was in the same boat as you at that moment, and I was definitely aiming for a pure Paragon storyline. Um, but it was definitely the one choice that made me stop and frantically Google what was the right thing to do <laughs> and how did it play into Mass Effect 3. And it was definitely a choice that made me feel really icky because they went rogue, basically, because they came to the realization that they were meant for independence and they had the right to lead their own lives and to basically rewire their brains to help your cause felt so icky. That's felt up. so icky. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I, I like I did it anyway, basically oh. only because I was told that they would help you out in Mass Effect 3 and that they, they would up your army points or whatever but it was definitely the moment where the paragon and renegade options felt way 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 too cut and dry and to simplify that deep moral conundrum into this is the paragon choice and this is the like badass renegade choice felt um felt really weird it's, it's interesting because like i actually i chose the same as you Aton, but not because i looked it up um <laughs> i'm a cheater <laughs> no, no that wasn't supposed to be shade that was just the idea that like i had different rationale for it because i mean hey you can make that rationale that like it's good for the galaxy if you know that it's going to be good for the galaxy that's that's a thought yeah but for me it was actually more the thought of i knew that the geth were networked intelligence and that they have the sort of no man is an island kind of look at their own intelligence. And by killing a large swath of them, I am collectively making their species dumber. <laughs> like I am limiting their potential and limiting who they are as people because they will not be networked together. And that was my sort of rationale, but I still hated it. Like I still hated that it was a paragon choice, hated that the other one was a renegade choice. Like it just, I kind of wish they had just left it without those point values. Do you guys like the Paragon Renegade system? Like the whole good cop, bad cop kind of mentality that they have? Because they did away with it in Andromeda and people were just as upset about what they replaced it with. So um, what do you guys feel about it? Like uh, Ashley Cooper, how'd you feel? I mean, for the most part, I think it is fine. I think it gets stripped down even further than what Bioware intended because a lot of people consider it like the good path and the bad path. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually how they're defined. And so I don't know that there's value to forcing yourself to play an exclusively renegade character or an exclusively paragon character. And I mean, aside from like aesthetic changes in two, like in terms of gameplay, I don't even think there is a change between the two. So actually, if you max out your paragon or your renegade, it'll unlock different options that are only available to you at that time, but that will actually let you bypass certain missions or even certain gameplay. Uh, okay. So like the best example I can think of, 
or the one that was like really hard hitting was in Mass Effect 1, if you've maxed out your Paragon, and I believe it's Paragon, you can actually skip the boss fight. You just, you can convince Saren to like shoot himself. You don't need to fight him at all. <laughs> the ethical thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> As of a course. Paragon would do. Comes back to my euthanasia <laughs> subplot from earlier. But uh, yeah, I, it is interesting that you can skip certain stuff or you can be punished for trying to do a middle of the road playthrough. Uh, specifically in 2, when it comes to Jack and Miranda and Talion Legion. After you complete the pair of loyalty missions for each of those characters, they get into a fight. And the only way to resolve the fight without picking a side is to have maxed out your Paragon or Renegade choices going up until that point. So if you have been trying to pick and choose or do a middle of the road gray Jedi playthrough, uh, you are punished and you will have to pick a side and you will lose the loyalty of one of those squad mates. And that causes them to die in the final mission. Oh, wow. I love that the Renegade option of those arguments is always just like, shut up the both of you. You're both dumb. <laughs> yeah, that really is it. <laughs> They're both just like, meh, I see your point. And then they go on their merry way. <laughs> yeah, so it is unfortunate that they do, in very specific instances, kind of railroad you into a specific path, which is a shame. But um, I do think that there's not a ton of value in it as a binary system. Like, what I think is like the next level version of that is what Telltale was doing with their choose-your-own-adventure branching narrative stuff, Mm -hmm. where it's like, we're not going to tell you what the morality of these choices are. You have to impose your own morality on the options and make your call. Yeah. And that shaped the story thusly, and I think that's much more interesting and gives you much richer opportunities than trying to say, like, this is a kind path versus a cruel path. And especially assigning point values to them and stuff like that gamifies morality in a strange way that I don't think betters the game as a result. Yeah. Like, coloring your uh, options as, like, this is the blue choice and this is the red choice. For most people, I feel like it takes the thought out of the decision. Yeah. It's just like, I am playing a blue story, so I'm going to pick the blue thing. Yes. So, but it, Well, yeah, so- like we were just talking about with Legion's loyalty mission, right? You're like, I wanted to choose the other thing, but I was doing a Paragon playthrough, so... So I picked the blue thing. So, yeah, it, t- it totally takes the actual thought and decision-making out of the decision-making. I guess... I don't like to be a devil's advocate ever, but (laughs) I I work on YA stuff. And one of the things I do think about is whether morality is something you're responsible for teaching. It's sort of an active question going on, I think, a lot right now and like maybe being overdetermined a lot in discussion of YA is like, um, well, you can't depict anything problematic. It's wrong to show these two in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. I think we're overdoing it in one direction now, but I do think there is something to be said, and maybe to dismiss, but to say it and then throw it away, um, <laughs> about, well, what if I did color code things for you? And what if I did say, look, this is the correct thing to do, right? Which is also kind of a sci-fi tradition, right? Like Star Trek, again, does this all the time, where it's like, Jean-Luc Picard will teach you to be a good person, right? Jean, I, in many ways, learned morality from watching Star Trek, where it's like, what Jean-Luc Picard does is the correct thing to do, right? <laughs> uh, and then you problematize it later where it's like Deep Space Nine will give you like, no, actually these things are grayer. But there is part of me that's like, I do kind of like the idea of a 12-year-old being like, hmm, genocide is bad, you know? <laughs> like, someone will, And someone will color code it for me so that I know that this is the bad thing to do. And I kind of like that. <laughs> as a mechanic in some weird ways. I can respect that. Yeah, fair enough. I think that the moral system as a concept isn't 
bad. Like it, like I agree with you, it is good and couldn't be useful for that thing. But I think that what we're finding here is that in Mass Effect, like their moral systems actually quite limiting, mm. and because. Paragon and Renegade are kind of coded as good and bad. Like literally, if you continue down a Renegade path, you get glowing red scars and glowing red eyes. Like you look <laughs> like a fucking demon. So I think that we've been finding that it is kind of restrictive when the game says this is a good choice or this is a bad choice. Like with the Geth, when the decision is actually more of an ethical quandary. Mm-hmm. But despite it being kind of narrow, I think that the interrupts are the coolest mechanic I've seen in a game so far. Like, that's such a great moment of tension because you don't know what's about to happen, but you have to make a split-second decision to go for it. So anxiety-producing. Yeah, that was great. I did really like the interrupts. Those were very cool. I liked that the Renegade ones were always just like, shoot him! (laughs) Just shoot him. Just shoot him. Punch that member of the press in the face. (laughs) <laughs> like yes. just oh my god <laughs> i guess what i like about it is the impulsivity of it because mm. it's like i don't know what i'm about to do and i have no time to look it up like <laughs> yeah is, which is the opposite effect of most of mass effect right where it's like ooh, i can google this i can think about it for a few days before i make the decision those choices it's like you do it or you don't and after it's done it's like oh shit what did i just do right like that is i imagine a lot of people after shooting somebody have that response hopefully yeah actually yeah. that really hit me in Mass Effect 3 because I was doing Morden's mission with curing the genophage and you go up to that tower and the renegade uh, interrupt came up and because I was doing a renegade playthrough I hit it and I watch my shepherd shoot Morden and like green blood sprays out of his chest oh my god he like collapses (laughs) to the floor and it was awful and he's like dragging his body up to the elevator like his streaking blood everywhere and i just sat there horrified i think like i even just like started to like cry and like i immediately like reloaded that save and completely redid that mission because i'm like i can't (laughs) have that on my conscience i can't have just killed morden but it was really cool that like a game mechanic could have led to a moment that had such an impact on me. Yeah. Well, it is also hard to talk about the binary morality system of Paragon and Renegade without talking about the elephant in the room, the ending of Mass Effect 3. Ah. Um. No notes. Keep it. <laughs> Love it. Actually? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> I like I. I like it. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, I mean, it was very divisive. Um, I'm assuming you played the remastered ending that they released a couple months afterwards, unless you uh, played it right after release. Um, So what did you like about it? To me, I picked Synthesis. And to me, Synthesis really is like the queerest ending. <laughs> like, like, what if we all just got along? What if our bodies were somehow all alienated from ourselves in both directions, but we had to negotiate sort of a new reality? And that to me felt like exactly the ending that this story was always building towards. And I obviously, I wish it wasn't as truncated as it was. Yeah. It has an echo of that Geth choice we were just talking about, right? Like, because it is kind of like, well, I've rewritten you without your consent, right? Like, and that sort of has been the experience of Mass Effect throughout. Like, it's actually, again, Shepard's experience after Cerberus is like, well, who knows? Now you're different. Deal with it, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I kind of liked that too. <laughs> 
like one of the ways Shepard is a shepherd is that like I have led you somewhere that you had not really much choice about and it's your new reality and I'm peacing out. And I kind of like <laughs> the even even the unsettling elements of it. I liked. OK, cool. All right. Um, what about our games writers? Uh, starting with you, Ashley Park. So I've sunk about or close to a thousand hours into the entire trilogy and I gotta tell you, I still don't know what the fuck the Star Child is about. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever done the fourth ending? What's the no? fourth ending? What? Oh, okay. So a lot of people complained about the three endings, and when they redid them, the common joke complaints were, "I wish I could just shoot the fucking Star Child." And so the developers were like, "Fine, you whiny babies, we'll put it in. You can shoot the Star Child." And he goes from his sweet little, you know, "You have the choice, Shepard." As soon as you shoot him, he goes, "So be it." The cycle continues. And then oh the Reapers just keep destroying everything and nothing happens. Like, wow. Shepard doesn't actually save anything. It's almost like that Last of Us ending we talked about last time, but they put it in. Like, <laughs> they, they included it. That's so funny. Yeah. I'm going to... I think that 3 got a lot better once you added the Citadel DLC to it and you got to kind of like do that party with all of your squad mates and get reunited and have like more time with them. Because really your squad mates and those characters are what I was invested in. And I think that what you invest in when you play that game. Yeah. And so that felt like the real send off. I've played three multiple times, but I actually find that like, I rarely get all the way to the end with the star child and then making the red, blue or green light decision at the end. Like I tend to actually just play through all of Citadel and then get towards the end when you're saying goodbye to everyone before you go off into the battlefield. And that feels like the real send off and like kind of where I naturally want to end. And I usually (laughs) only make it to there. Does anyone here know the cupcake story of the ending? Oh yes. No. Okay. So a lot of fans had very mixed reactions about uh, the ending and they were unsure of how to express this to the developers because there was a lot of shitty people. And they didn't have Twitter, so they couldn't send death threats yet. Yeah. Oh God, poor Laura Bailey. Um, They raised a couple thousand dollars to send a fleet of cupcakes to uh, Edmonton Bioware to thank them for the game, for the hard work that they did. And all of the cupcakes were iced and colored red, green, and blue, but were all flavored vanilla. So that (laughs) no matter what cupcake you bit into, you were getting the exact same thing. I got to appreciate a petty bitch move. Like, I really do. (laughs) I do begrudgingly respect that. Uh, Ashley Cooper, do you have any thoughts on the ending? So I played Mass Effect for the first time four years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I got to it much later than most other people. And as a result, I knew going into it that everybody fucking hated the ending. Mm -hmm. And then I played it and then it was over. And I was like, but why though? I mean, is it an incredible ending? No. I think if they were to make that exact same game series today, that would not be considered a satisfactory ending. But I was like, these games are really old. You know, like, I think people were expecting, like, every single choice you've made somehow will impact the ending. And I was like, that's an unrealistic expectation on a technical level. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you have any respect for this medium, you know that what you're asking for is, is absurd and unrealistic. I was like, all of my choices, as far as my crewmates went, mattered individually. Great. I got that. That was all very satisfying. 
and then I got to choose how to solve the Reaper problem. What more did you want? Mm-hmm. I guess the the cutscenes and the information afterwards are not in extremely fulfilling. It's just kind of like, and it's done. You know, yeah. like it's it's just shy of like freeze frame, like the team that's left, like thumbs upping the camera, like. <laughs> <laughs> So, like, maybe I would have been happier with some more on that end, like, seeing the consequence of the world that you've forged for everybody. But, like, I don't know what else everybody was expecting that they were so angry about, I guess. I think that a lot of the reason why people were disappointed and that there was a huge backlash to the ending was because of the way 3 was marketed. Because explicitly in the marketing, they were saying all of your choices from 1 and 2 and 3 are all going to matter. Like, it's all leading up to this point. Oh, okay. They specifically said the words, we promise you you're not going to get an A, B, or C ending. Oh my god, did they really? Yeah, that was (laughs) an exact phrase. Literally what it was. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So playing this so divorced from all of that, I had no idea about any of that stuff. Holy shit. It was a classic problem of the developers over-promising and under-delivering, but playing it again more recently, kind of like divorced from that backlash or all of that hype, I I look at it with kinder eyes now, like kind of like knowing like it's a good game for what it is. (laughs) I think it reminds me a lot of, did anybody pay attention to Fable? when it was in development and all of like the highfalutin cloud nine promises Peter Molyneux would make. Uh, And then it came out and it was kind of a choose your own adventure Zelda game. And that was it. Yep. And it was like, I mean, this is a very entertaining game. I'm having a blast. It's nothing like what I was promised, but like, (laughs) yeah. Aton, you had something you wanted to jump in with? Oh yeah. Well, I was just going to say about the ending of three. I agree that it's not really satisfying on any level, but at the same time, it's almost fitting in the sense that, you know, over the course of these three games, Shepard has become this superhuman hero of the entire universe. You can't expect Shepard at the end of it all to, you know, to save the universe, defeat the Reapers, um, this impossible threat, and then to just sort of like walk away from it all and just like, live the rest of his or her life like it's almost fitting that it was just like at the end of it all Shepard valiantly gave his or her life to save the rest of the world and it's the rest of it is all ambiguous thank you goodbye thanks for playing bye yeah oh it doesn't bother me at all that (laughs) Shepard dies at the end that's that that never bothered me even a little bit I think it's correct as an ending yeah agreed also like I think it would be less satisfying if they were like there's 42 endings like i i think (laughs) i think one of the works this text has to do is come to that final choke point and it wants to ask you okay tell me what you think the value of life is and you have these three choices right like i do think that those three colors do sort of summarize worldviews that you may have learned or not learned in the course of playing mass effect Mm -hmm. um who counts as a person who do you get to control whose value matters. And I do think making it a choke point like that has an aesthetic choice to it that would be undermined, I think, if it was like, and then in this ending, the Rachni show up, you know? Like, one of the (laughs) things it has to do as a finale is become elemental in that way. Yeah, that's very true. I I sort of agree with you guys in that, like, I feel like it was good, it was not great. There are certain parts of it that I really do like. I certainly am not bothered by Shepard dying, 
it is for me, though, I liked other points in the series where I found out that there was a calculation going on behind the scenes. It's not that I needed multiple endings. It's that I almost didn't want to be in control of it myself. I wanted a proper resolution based on the decisions I had made. Mm. Not that there had to be millions of options, but rather millions of thoughts behind it into a couple mm. options. So like I liked on the suicide mission in two that your choices of who were the tech expert, who was the biotic expert, who was the squad leader mattered, that the loyalties mattered. I like when you're on Rannoch and you're trying to decide between Tally and Legion and the only way you can save both species, the Geth and the Corians, or if you have committed yourself to doing enough of the missions and made enough choices that benefit both species. And the game is running those calculations. Like I, it's my favorite part of Life is Strange 2 is that the last decision you make, and I, I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't played it, but the last decision you make is very heavily affected by all the choices you've made in the game up until then. And I realize that's coming much later and I, I don't begrudge the game for it, but it is something that I, I was feeling like was missing and would have been nice. One of the most traumatic things that happened to me during Mass Effect is uh, I didn't realize in Mass Effect 2 that there was a real timer running about the final mission where it's like, depending on whether you or not you do other things affects how many people survive when you do the suicide mission. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Same. <laughs> and as a consequence, I was sort of doing what I always do when I play video games, which is like finishing all the tweedly little side missions before I did the final thing uh, and then had to watch, uh, what's her name, get liquefied before my eyes, which was very traumatic. Apparently I did it in such a way that I got half of the liquefaction that was supposed to happen. But like, it was too late, right? Like I had overwritten so many save files, there was no way to go back. And so I was confronted with this like person who I had failed, like dissolving in a test tube before my eyes. Um, and I still like have nightmares. <laughs> the first time I played, like all I had was Chakwas left. And she was like, where were you? Oh, no. <laughs> I, was, I still had to scan the Hades Nexus. I'm sorry. <laughs> You still had to probe your anus? Yeah, I had so much platinum left to find. <laughs> it, it, it did not cut it for her. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, unfortunately, we are starting to run out of time. We don't have 100 hours to spend on this like we do with the entire trilogy. Or in uh, Ashley's consideration, I would say 1,000 hours, apparently. <laughs> um, before we go, I do want to ask everyone, uh, we'll start with Eitan. Hey, Eitan, what you playing? Right now, well, I am finishing up Mass Effect 2 mm-hmm. and playing some Overwatch on my days off. And you just lent me the remake of Final Fantasy VII, and I cannot freaking wait to get into that. <laughs> yes, we will need to do an episode on that game at some point. Oh, please, 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 please. Ashley Park, what you playing? So these days, my favorite event is on an Apex Legends. So I've been playing a lot of Armed and Dangerous, or as we like to call it in my household, Shot Fun. <laughs> That's a game mode where you only use shotguns and snipers. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Okay. It's so great. Uh, and what about you, Ashley Cooper? What you playing? Uh, also playing a lot of Apex Legends and currently wrapping up a Silent Hill 4 playthrough. Yes, we've been watching your stream. It's been lovely. Uh, and what about you, Anthony? What you playing? I literally just finished playing Arkham Knight for the first time. Uh, and now I've moved on to Spider-Man, the, the recent Ooh, Spider-Man. Ooh, Spider-Man's so good. So much fun. It's really lovely, but in both games, I'm having a really specific 
I think this was a critique that was launched against Spider-Man when it came out. Like, there's a very, like, cop-friendly vibe to it. Yeah. It is just grinding every gear in my body right now. In <laughs> fairness, that is largely inherent to superhero storytelling in general up to this point. I find that really, I mean, this is not, uh, this is extending the conversation, but I find that really troubling as, like, an inheritance of superhero lore. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a person who writes superhero comics, like, one of the legacies you have to respect when working on cape books is that this these are characters and stories and a kind of a genre created by a group of Jewish people after World War II thinking about the limits of the state and the limits of liberalism. And vigilantism is sort of a response to that. And I think that crafting superhero stories that are super state-friendly and are like, maybe you should join the military, are really alarming and I, I feel every gear in my body grind whenever Spider-Man's like, Spider-Cop, I'm Spider-Cop, I love the cops. It's really Ooh, weird. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when superheroes are breaking the law. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, the Superman as a character is like, well, obviously, the billionaires who run the world are corrupt. And we were talking about this really when we were talking about Paragon versus Renegade. Like, sometimes what's right and what the system is telling you are right are opposite. And you have to make a decision that uh, puts you at odds with the state. And I think that that's an important thing, especially with something like Spider-Man, right? Like Spider-Man should be the most hated man in New York City and he still has to do the right thing. That to me is what a Spider-Man story should be about. Mm. Um, But it's a lovely game otherwise, except for the missing Harlem at the top. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently that's what we're going to see when we play as Miles Morales in the sort of sequel, which I'm super excited for. But I will say stick with Spider-Man because it's it's not going to get great in terms of the cop commentary, but it's going to get better as the game goes along. Oh, good to know. That's good to know. I did. It did make me cry already once um, in the scene in the restaurant where... Uh, Mary Jane and Peter are sort of trying to figure out their problems. Oh man, heartbreaking. So Peter leaves because of course a siren goes by and then suddenly the camera moves back and Stan Lee is there. I'm going to cry even describing it. Stan Lee is there and he says, um, I-, I hope you two make it work. You're always my favorites. Oh, I'm going to cry. Uh, I know. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> yeah, they, they do get into some commentary on fascist police state. Oh good, that makes me happy. A, a little too late in the game for-, for my liking but they do definitely comment on it so it's not as bad as it seems. Um, yeah. Myself, I've actually been playing um, Signs of the Sojourner, a deck-building narrative game. Normally, in a game, you're very combative with people. You're trying to win a battle, especially in a card game. You're trying to take the hand or whatever. But in this, you're actually using your deck to cooperate with the other player. And the only thing that is stopping you from doing so is not having the right communicative tools in your hand. So you guys are trying to come to agreements on things based on your approaches to the conversation. And each approach is a different card that has to like match up with the previous card that was played. It's a really fun take on, on the game. And... It, Really nice to see something other than combat included in the game. So it's been a lot of fun. Aton, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ashley Park, thank you for joining us. Thank you for letting me indulge my Mass Effect habit. <laughs> it's never going to end. Uh, and Ashley Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? Just having fun on Twitch. So come hang out with me and my dog. Right. And that's Ashley Versus, right? Yeah. Ashley VS. Yes. Excellent. And Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show. We were so glad to have you. Is there anything you want to plug before we go? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Mia Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. Thank you so much for having me. This I feel like I learned a lot from this, both like about this story and also like ways to think about it. I'm such a joy being on with you folks. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone. This is Rainbow Road. 
If you liked this episode, follow us on Twitter at Rainbow Road Pod or get in touch with us for future episodes at rainbowroadpodcast at gmail.com. And a big thank you to all of our guests today and our producer, Matt Kinnar. Thanks for listening to Rainbow Road.